This is a HeadGum Podcast. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Let's start with a light question. What is the nature of humanity? Are we good and honest fundamentally as a species or left to our own devices? Are we bad and deceitful? And I want to be clear. This is not just an exercise in airy philosophical toga think. I mean, it is, you know, a little bit. This is a question that goes back generations to the earliest philosophers who basically sat on white clouds and pontificated all day. But In our reality today, our beliefs about the answers to these fundamental questions shape the decisions we make about how we build our society today. Think about it. If you imagine that the moment civilization is removed, everything descends into violence and chaos because humanity is fundamentally evil, well, you're going to want to prevent that breakdown by any means necessary, and you'd use the law to enforce it. And a lot of people do believe that, and they do act accordingly. But if, on the other hand, You believe that civilization is just a natural outgrowth of our human propensity to cooperate and act altruistically, that humans at root are fundamentally good to each other. Well, you'd probably think that we don't need the strong arm of the state to force us to work together. And you might support policies that line up with that, like, say, a restorative rather than a punitive approach to criminal justice. Let's get even more concrete. Imagine disaster preparedness, say. If you think humanity can't be trusted to help each other out in the event of a major storm, you might be inclined to ready the National Guard as soon as a storm arrives in order to stop potential looting. But if you believe that people will help each other at moments of crisis, well, then you would put resources in protecting people rather than property. And this is not, again, an abstract question. Every time there is a major disaster, you see news reports of violence and looting. Yet there is also evidence that people actually become more altruistic after a natural disaster. So which one of these is right? Are we good or are we bad? Well, this debate is not new. It is, in fact, thousands of years old, but it was reestablished in the early modern period of the 17th and the 18th century. You might have even learned about it in Philosophy 101. That's right. It's the Clash of the Titans. On one side, you've got the British bummer Thomas Hobbes, who describes the basic state of humans and nature as a, quote, war of all against all. Because he believed life was so buck-ass wild in the state of nature, we were all just braining each other with rocks and cutting down trees to sharpen into spears to gore each other. Well, what a king or queen needs to do in that case is to assert their power to protect us from this hell of natural conflict. It doesn't matter how a sovereign comes into power, according to Hobbes. All that matters is that it can protect those who have consented to obey. But arguing from the opposite perspective, there's the Frenchman Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He believed that humanity was good by nature, but only ended up being corrupted by society. 
Therefore, since people are good on their own without society, but, you know, we still need society for some things, Rousseau tried to describe a form of government that gave people its benefits without stomping on their freedom, which is not easy. (laughs) But the beliefs of these two thinkers once again shaped the political systems that we have today. This is a case where philosophy is not abstract at all, but is part of our daily lives, is threaded into the fabric of our reality. And policymakers today still make decisions based on where they come down on this fundamental disagreement. Well, today we have a guest who comes down hard on one side of the debate and for, I think, very good reason. Rutger Bregman is a Dutch historian and most recently the author of Humankind, A Hopeful History. He's absolutely one of the most fascinating thinkers working today in any medium in history, sociology and anything. I love talking to him. Please welcome Rutger Bregman. Rucker, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I've followed your work for a while. It's uh, really wonderful to finally have a chance to talk to you. Your new book, let's just jump right into it, mm-hmm. is about uh, the thesis is that humanity is essentially good. Is that correct? It's maybe a radical thesis. Hmm. Yeah, I would say that most people deep down are pretty decent. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I mean, the question is obviously what is good? What is what is an actually good person. So Mm -hmm. that's why I chose to use the word decent, which is sort of maybe in in German, my my book is called Im Grunde Gut, which I really like. It's like sort of, (laughs) (laughs) uh, it's not exactly the same as fundamentally good, not as, not as saying that that we're born good or we're not angels, obviously, right? We're capable of all kinds of really nasty things. But I would say that, yeah, the good is more powerful in us than the bad. So you're talking about goodness the kind of goodness where like, hey, if I if I'm dying on the street, will someone come over and help me? Or if I uh, if I leave my umbrella and turn away for a second, is someone likely to steal it like that sort of general yeah. decency to each other, consideration and uh, malice versus consideration? Yeah. Or at least the opposite of selfishness. So in, in the book, I give this very simple example at the beginning. You know, imagine that you are. In a plane that has just crashed and broken into two parts, there's fire, there's panic. And on planet A, everyone is basically, you know, very selfish and people trample over the kids and the old people, etc. And everyone tries to get out as soon as possible. On planet B, people are, you know, uh, willing to cooperate and they they let the vulnerable people go out first, etc. And they're even willing to risk their own lives in the process. Now, the question is, what planet do we live on? What's really interesting here is that if you ask most people, they say, well, obviously we live on planet A. I mean, Mm -hmm. just look around, right? You can just follow the news. Any reasonably knowledgeable person will say, yes, we live on planet A. The interesting thing, though, is that scientists have been saying basically since the 1950s the opposite, that actually Mm. uh, in the vast majority of cases, we live on planet B, you know, the cooperative planet where People really work together. And that's not just a theory, but it's based on hundreds and hundreds of case studies of indeed natural disasters, for example, earthquakes, yeah. tsunamis, or, you know, one very famous case, obviously, or infamous case is, is um, you know, the, the the burning down of or the, the destruction of the Twin Towers, when also mm-hmm. people literally said to each other, um, no, you go first as they were going down the stairs. No, you go first. No, you go first. Yeah. It's really unimaginable. But that is... That is what people do. Crises tend to bring out the best in us. 
Yeah. Uh, I've, I've experienced that. I mean, even in my own small way, uh, I've never been in the middle of a massive crisis, but I remember living in New York city when there was a massive blackout, which is, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, as close as you can get to, uh, or at least in the time I lived there, uh, to that sort of emergency and people quickly start helping each other. You know, the, uh, uh, every bodega puts out, or, you know, someone who has a generator puts out a, uh, extension cord so people can charge their phones. Mm-hmm. You know, that was something yeah. that I remember very distinctly, that sort of basic aid to each other. I know Rebecca Solnit has written about how there's this, uh, probably about the same research that you have, uh, that, yeah, we have this myth that when there's a hurricane comes through that everyone mm-hmm. starts smashing windows and, you know, because all oh, the cops aren't coming around so I can just rob every bank. And so why not do it? Uh, but in reality, people immediately start helping each other. Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing here is that often the news gives you the opposite impression. So very often after, say, an earthquake or tsunami or you know, flooding or something like that, the news is full of stories about looting and violence and people plundering, etc. And it's always, you know, a couple of weeks or months later when the, when the researchers come in and the scientists come in and do the proper research that they discovered that these were just rumors that, mm-hmm. you know, were somehow just spreading. And it's especially those at the top, you know, the, the people who, with the resp- uh, responsibility to respond and to send in the emergency service, for example, they are especially vulnerable to this kind of cynical view mm-hmm. of, of how humans behave. And the, the classic example that indeed Rebecca Solnit has done great research here um, is, is what happened uh, after Katrina you know, yeah. in 2005. Is that indeed they uh, elites decided to send in uh, the military, basically that started shooting at innocent people, um, yeah. instead of sending in you know the emergency uh, services, etc. And um, it's it's a little bit as if as if those at the top quite often when they think about how most humans behave, they look in the mirror and they assume <laughs> that they would behave like they themselves would behave, which is quite selfish. But that's not the case. Most people are pretty decent. But yes, power corrupts. But most people aren't that powerful. But but the uh, those elites who are saying that those people in charge, I mean, to a certain extent, they're just repeating what many or most people believe about humanity. That mm-hmm. uh, the, and, and there are you know, if I'm just looking for anecdotal cases of uh, you know look that run counter to your thesis, I can find mm-hmm. them. I live in Los Angeles. It's a big city. You know, if I leave something valuable or something, frankly, even made of metal on the street corner, it's going to be gone in a couple hours. Right. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like there's that sort of element I know. And that's because people probably assume it's junk or whatever. But, you know, the point being, uh, you know, when you have a lot of people, we in one place, we sort of assume the worst about what can happen. And we say, okay, we need to like sort of protect against what random people walking by Mm -hmm. might do to my thing that I've left out, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We, we do really we do lock our car doors, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's obviously also because a quite small group of people who are thieves in this case can do a lot of damage. Of course. That is, that is one of the tragedies is that, that the, the good may be, I don't know, in the majority, but the bad is stronger, <laughs> you know? Uh, it, yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. Like I do have that belief of, okay, if I leave something valuable, it'll, it'll be pinched, but I don't assume that everyone walking down the street is a thief. And in fact, 
if I did, if I meet someone who, who talks that way, oh my God, look, they're all thieves around us. Oh my God, this is a paranoid person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so fair point. Yeah. But let's give another example then. Please. Um, that is, you know, still relevant for our lives today. It's not, it's not just about wars or natural disasters or something. It's uh, the behavior of bystanders when, mm-hmm. when something happens. Say someone has a heart attack or is attacked in the street. Um, for a very long time, psychologists believed in this phenomenon that is called the bystander effect. Mm-hmm. That in these cases, especially if you live in a big city, that people are apathetic and they don't help each other because they're like, you know, it's not my responsibility. And um, uh, the the most infamous case of this was the the killing of Kitty Genovese in the right, 60s. the famous famous story yeah. in in New York, where supposedly thirty eight bystanders had seen it happen and and didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Now, what's really interesting here is that well, the, the whole Kitty Genovese story turns out to be fake news. In reality, she <laughs> she died in the arms of one of her best friends and. Uh, Actually, very few people had seen it happening and at least two people had called the police, but the police didn't show up because, you know, back then it was relatively uh, standard for, well, it still is, obviously. It still happens a lot for, for men to beat their their wives, but back then that wasn't really seen as an emergency. Um, so it's a very different story. And also the research has actually gone in completely the other direction. So this whole bystander effect, most of the research was uh, just laboratory experiments. And as you know, there's probably know there's been this crisis in psychology, the replication crisis. Mm-hmm. A lot of experiments that have been done can't be replicated. Um, and now there's a new generation of researchers that said, well, why don't we just look at CCTV footage? Because mm. we live in these big cities today. We've got cameras everywhere. We don't have to do these experiments. We can just study how real people behave in the real world. Right. So one researcher, a Asian woman called Marie Lindegaard, um, uh, has done this and has built this huge data set with videos from Copenhagen, Amsterdam, uh, Cape Town in South Africa, you know, quite different places. Um, And she's shown that in 90% of all cases, 90%, people help each other. Yeah. Um, so that basically destroyed a whole <laughs> uh, research tradition. We could like a, a whole library full of books could be thrown away because this is obviously the most powerful evidence that you can have how people behave in the real world. Yeah. Um, and that is, I think, a comforting message is that, no, we're not alone. If something happens on the streets and people see it happen, most of the time, most people will help you. And the more people see it happen, the more likely it is that someone will help you. Yeah. You know, uh, this reminds me of like one of the weirdest things that ever happened to me. If I could tell a little random story. Um, mm-hmm. I was walking down the street in Los Angeles, uh, uh, you know, in sort of a bar district. I saw a guy in the middle of the street. He was passed out on his back and he had a $20 bill between his fingers. And I sort of, you know, walk by and I'm like, that's a little odd. I'm thinking about it. I walk by these two girls and they're going, is that guy dead? Should we like, should we do something? And I said, okay, you know what? I wasn't going to, but you know, thank you for my, I'll call 911. You know what I mean? I call 911. 911 mm. tells me, well, have you tried talking to the man? I was like, oh, you're right. I should have just said, are you okay first? I go up to the guy. I say, are you okay? He immediately opens his eyes and goes, yeah, I'm fine. I'm doing okay. And gets up and walks away. And I'm like, what, what the <laughs> hell was this? What the hell was this guy yeah. doing? And the only explanation for what, for what this was in my opinion, is that was he was running some kind of experiment. It was an experiment. I think he was doing a social experiment. I think yeah. he maybe he had a camera and he wanted to see if someone would take the twenty dollars, 
right? Because he was holding it like in between his fingers stretched out. Like it would have been very easy to snatch it out, you know? And to his disappointment, he seemed annoyed. I think to his disappointment, me and two other people tried to help him (laughs) and ask if he was okay. Uh Um, And I I have other, you know, uh, I mean, that's just a funny example. I've been in situations where, you know, again, crowded place someone collapses on the subway someone i've been on a subway platform someone jumped on the tracks very scary situation and immediately everyone's like get it we got get off the tracks you know what i mean mm-hmm. a mentally ill person who had who had jumped so i i think a lot of us have had that that experience of um when something bad happens in your vicinity you mm-hmm. do kind of turn on a little bit oh my gosh i have to help i have that reaction i'm sure many other people do yeah yeah a good friend of mine, when he was a kid, he did this experiment in Amsterdam. Have you ever been to Amsterdam? No, I would love to go. You know, there's this, this famous square, the dam square in the middle of the city. And what he did is he put a small table there and um, he had like, a, how do you say that? Uh, a little box and he put always savings in there. I think it was like mm-hmm. 100 guilders, like, I don't know, $50 or something at, at the time. Uh, for him, a lot of money. It was like a kid of, I don't know, 12 years old. And um, he put a little note next to it and he said, um, you can take whatever you want of this money, uh, but at the, end, at the end of the day, I'll be back uh, and uh, I'll donate everything that's in there to, uh, I don't know, kids cancer research or something mm-hmm. like that. And P.S., uh, uh, you can also uh, give a little bit or add a little bit of money of yourself if you want. Mm-hmm. To. So he came back uh, at the end of the day and it was like, I don't know. A thousand guilders in there or something like that. Wow. Multiplied by, uh, by a lot. <laughs> uh, so he always, he always told me the story. Like, yes, most people are pretty decent. Now, <laughs> obviously, you have to give them the, the right nudges <laughs> sometimes. But in this case, it worked. Well, th- these are, though, you know, to be fair, what we're talking about are, you know, the day-to-day small interactions that we have as, you know, social people in the, you know, town square or with mm-hmm. our friends and neighbors. Um, but whether humans are ultimately good or decent, however you want to frame it, is a, also a bigger question, you know, in terms of f- philosophy, political science, mm-hmm. um, how much, you know, individuals need to be protected from, you know, the group, uh, how we govern ourselves as a, as a species. And, you know, that question stretches back thousands of years. Mm-hmm. That we've been having that debate. So I'd love to scope out a little bit and talk about like that element of it. I mean, this is something that, Philosophers have been dating, have been debating for millennia. Exactly. There's this really old theory in Western culture that science is called veneer theory. And this is the idea that our civilization is just a thin veneer, just a thin layer. Mm. And that below that lies raw human nature, that deep down people are just selfish. Huh. Now, now this theory comes back again and again and again. In our culture, yes. So you already see it among the Asian Greeks. You find it with Orthodox Christianity, you know, St. Augustine talking about the the idea of original sin, that we're all born as sinners. You find it with the Enlightenment philosophers of the 17th and the 18th century. You find it with uh, the Darwinists or the social Darwinists, uh, you know, the people who first thought about evolution theory. Um, And uh, I think it's also embedded at the heart of the capitalist system, right? Yeah. Especially many economists in the 70s and the 80s said, well, people are just selfish and we need to deal with that and basically design our institutions around it. Or, or you know, Gordon Gecko, who's that greed is good, you know, just, just uh, deal with it. That's the way it is. 
So this idea, veneer theory, it comes back again and again and again. It's a this very is like powerful a, idea in our This field. is like a meta idea almost. This is like a way of, like, people have this theory without even realizing it, without giving it that name. This is like a common way that philosophers yeah. have thought about humanity. Yeah. And it's, I've never put a name to it before. That's like, it is kind of an odd notion. Yeah. And people from the left to the right have been doing it. People mm-hmm. who are, you know, staunchly atheist or are very religious have been doing it. It's it's really uh, something that is pretty much everywhere. Um, and um, I think it's wrong, you know? <laughs> I think it's really wrong. I think there's very, very powerful evidence that we have right now from sociology and anthropology and uh, biology and even, even economics um, that points in a different direction. And that's the reason why I wanted to write this book, because I started to notice that so many scientists from all these diverse disciplines were moving to a more hopeful view of human nature. But as you know, academics are incredibly specialized these days. Mm-hmm. They know everything about their tiny field of study. And that's very important, the specialization. Obviously, I couldn't have written this book without these brilliant specialists. But sometimes someone needs to take a step back and see what's, what's the bigger picture, right? Yeah. And uh, that's really exciting that something bigger has been happening here. And there's really a convergence in all these findings. Yeah. So what is the alternative to veneer theory? I mean, because when you put it that way, mm-hmm. veneer theory, the idea that civilization is just this little cover over some deeper, darker uh, human nature of some description, that seems a little, that does seem a little facile to me because civilization is what there's not been humanity without civilization. We have always organized ourselves socially in some way. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's clearly a deeper thing than that. So what is the alternative view that you present? I think what's uh, most exciting is uh, what's been happening in evolutionary anthropology. Mm. So for a very long time, when people thought about evolutionary theory, they quickly became a little bit pessimistic. Uh, you probably know the book by Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene, that was published mm-hmm. in the 70s. Very important book, and that I can still recommend. Uh, yeah, I, I love that today. book when I read it in college, um, and an often yeah. misunderstood book. Absolutely, it's it's a it's a masterpiece. It really is about the the role of genes in the evolution of uh, of species. Um, but in the first few editions of the book, there was this line uh, about that we probably need to teach our kids altruism and generosity because they are born selfish. Mm-hmm. And that really sort of uh, rhymed, how do you say that, with the zeitgeist. Um, it was sort of the me decade, uh, yeah. according to Time magazine. And um, individualism was on the, ride, on the rise, and especially in the 80s and the 90s. I mean, cynicism was sort of avant-garde back then, I think. Um, and um, that was sort of the standard interpretation that people had of evolutionary theory. It was sort of a, a pessimistic uh, interpretation, is that people are, again, you know, born selfish, and that that's just the way evolution works. Um, there's now a new generation of researchers that pretty much says the opposite. So one guy is called Brian Hare. Um, he talks about survival of the friendliest. Uh, there's a book with, with exactly that title, which means that for millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. Nice guys finish first. Um, uh, and that only changed um, 
a relatively short time ago, uh, when, when we became sedentary, when we settled down and started building villages and cities around 10,000 years ago. Now, 10,000 years sounds like a long time ago, but actually for historians who like to look at the bigger picture, it's, it's not that long ago, actually, because right. we've been around for, what is it, 300,000 years? Yeah. So the biggest part of our history, we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers in societies that were, according to the the evidence we have, relatively peaceful, egalitarian, and also quite healthy, by the way. We didn't have infection diseases like uh, COVID-19 <laughs> because we didn't live too close to uh, to other uh, A lot less people a- to get animals. disease from. Yeah, well, especially animals. So yeah. infection diseases are, are the product of often domestication, right? Because we yeah. just live too close to our animals. I mean, factory farming is also a big cause of, uh, of a lot of these new diseases that, that are uh, here every few, few years. Um, but anyway, uh, that was basically the case for a very long part of our history. And then we made the biggest mistake we ever made. Uh, there's, li- there's literally a, a paper with that title by Jared Diamond, the geographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of my favorite writers. He's, he's written the book Guns, Germs and Steel. I yeah. mean, it's from, from the, uh, the end of the 90s. Anyway, he, he calls the invention of agriculture. And I would include, by the way, settling down, becoming sedentary with that. He calls it the biggest mistake in all of human history because that inaugurated the era of warfare, inequality, violence, um, infection diseases, plagues, you name it. We should never have done it. Yeah, I've read this argument in a few places. I've also heard it described as the agriculture trap. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a really interesting art because, you know, the way it's always been presented to us is that agriculture is the beginning of civilization and the moment at which everything got better. And yeah. the argument is I've read it. I mean, you correct me, but I love to sketch it out and then you fill in the blanks is uh, that, you know, basically these these grasses <laughs> and other plants mm-hmm. took advantage of us in a way, figured out that uh, as as, evo- you know, as much as anything evolutionary can be said to figure anything out. Uh, a way for us to propagate them by planting them massively. And in exchange, mm-hmm. we were able to massively increase our populations, but at the expense of our quality of life. Um, yeah, because exactly. now people live a lot less. Lo- people started life expectancy went down um, and the actual labor required. Like it's a lot less pleasant to farm wheat or rice or what have you than it is to, uh, you know, uh, live a hunter gatherer lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. And this is not just, true about agriculture, but it's true for almost all the milestones of civilization. So Mm. think about the invention of writing. Was that a great thing that suddenly everyone started to read poetry or something like that? Yes. No, actually, writing was was mainly bureaucracy to keep track of debts, mainly, Mm -hmm. so that you can see who owned what uh, what amount of slaves, for example. Slavery is also a, a really... Uh, civilized or modern phenomenon here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another example is, um, well, the, the invention of cities, obviously, is that people started living too, too close to one, one another. So cities became petri dishes, basically, uh, mm. for the development of, of diseases. Um, uh, money is another great example. People often believe in this myth that we just invented money out of convenience because you have two cows and I have one goat and, you know, it's hard to trade. So yeah. probably uh, money is more useful. 
absolutely not the case. You know, yeah, I'm, was, I'm reading David Graeber's really book about that right well, now. Well, there you go. There you go. Then you already know it. But for your listeners, please, uh, <laughs> you know, money was an invention of the state and it because it really um, helped to um, to to pay for uh, wars uh, and to raise armies and um, uh, it helped you to collect taxes, basically. Now, as you know, I'm quite fond of taxation, especially when it's about taxing the rich. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. But for the biggest part of our history, taxes were incredibly unjust, you know, mainly paid by the poor um, and yeah. mainly used to finance horrible wars. Yeah, what strikes me about so many of those stories, the truth about the birth of agriculture, the truth about the birth of money, is that we get the truth about these things once we start listening to anthropologists like David Graeber, mm -hmm. his book on debt is like economists have made up this myth about where money came from. Mm -hmm. But as an anthropologist, I can tell you that does, it didn't fucking happen. We've gone yeah. and looked at every society. This n never once has, you know, barter turned into money. Right. Et cetera. Um, and uh, once you actually uh, I, I love the approach of, you know, when you actually go and look at the way humans organize societies, uh, we once we give up our sort of, you know, more facile assumptions about yeah. this is how it works. Um, a lot of our edifice of, you know, what we've built mentally of how we think human society is organized kind of crumbles once you look at how it actually is organized. Once you actually yeah. listen to anthropologists, sociologists, historians, yeah. people like that. I think that's a really, really great point. And I think it's, it goes to the heart of what makes history so powerful and what makes it the most subversive of all the sciences, of all the social sciences. Mm. It just shows us that things can be different and that there's nothing inevitable about the way we structured our society and economy right now. It cannot change. Um, it also teaches us to distrust theory. Um, so... Uh, one example uh, from my other book uh, is um, about what happens when bankers go on strike. Now, as you know, the economists will tell us, well, bankers are very important. They have a lot of human capital. They have went to great universities. They're very smart. They're very productive. They contribute a lot to GDP. So if they go on strike, that's terrible. That's a disaster. Yeah. But my approach as a historian is to think, well, did it ever happen? You know, do we have a natural experiment of bankers going on strike? Turns out mm -hmm. we have. In Ireland, in the 1970s, bankers were angry that their wages were not keeping up with inflation. So they said, you know what? We'll go on strike and then you'll see just how important we are. <laughs> right. And uh, the strike lasted for six months and nothing much happened. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is this like the bank tellers or is this the, the stock the stock? No, brokers? no, no. The whole, the whole financial system, you know? Wow. People couldn't access their bank accounts for, for six months. And they had to invent their own money. That's what they did. So wow. the, pub, the pub owners became the new bankers, actually. Because there's, there's one historian who later wrote that, you know, if you sell liquids to people, you probably know something about their liquidity as well. So they started, <laughs> <laughs> they started writing these IOUs on, on pieces of toilet paper and on yeah. packs of cigar boxes, etc. And uh, that worked out, you know, pretty well. Most, most Irish people don't remember it because it didn't really have a big impact on society. The economy yeah. just kept growing, uh, etc. Now, and another that, example of this in, in my, that I have in, uh, in this book about sort of, let's just look what really happens is this, is this Lord of the Fly story. You know, Lord of I, the Fly is the very famous novel. I wanted, I, just, I, I was going to tee you up to talk about this. You wrote an article about this a few months ago, mm -hmm. uh, I believe. Uh, yeah, please, please tell us this story. It's fascinating. Well, I guess most of us have at least heard about Lord of the Flies or maybe were forced to read it in school um, or something like that. Um it's this 
very famous novel by William Golding about kids that yeah. end up on an island. And they got a pig head. Island. They smash the kids' glasses. Uh, very scary. I mm. read it in seventh grade. Uh, yeah. I remember how cheap the paper of the paperback was. It was like just <laughs> copies of Lord of the Flies were just like floating around my middle school. Like you just yeah. go to the bathroom, there'd be one on the floor. They were all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's And it's a classic example of veneer theory. Hmm. Here you have kids who are well-educated, well-behaved, you know, very nice, good British boarding school kids, but you give them freedom, you put them on an uninhabited island and let them build their own society and... Chaos, yeah. murder, violence. The savage comes out in each and every one of them. And the message, sort of the message there, and the, yeah, the message there is if we if we don't have civilization, if we remove that thin veneer, the which is civilizing us and and keeping us nice and stopping us from murdering each other. Once you yeah. remove civilization, people go nuts and they start tearing out each other's throats and yeah. uh, braining each other with coconuts. Yeah, or that basically we have to choose between freedom and security. We can't have both. You know, you can have freedom, but that's going to be a war of all against all. Or you can have security, but then you won't be able to make your own choices because you need the police, army, powerful rulers, CEOs, yeah. monarchs, you name it. That's basically uh, the idea. Now, again, I thought as a historian, well, maybe you can just see if it has ever happened, <laughs> maybe. You know, maybe there's right. been a case sometime in all of world history where real kids shipwrecked on an island. It would be interesting to see. So, uh, yeah, I started on this journey. Uh, obviously, you know, first typed in on Google, uh, kids shipwrecked on island, real life Lord of the Flies. And, um, well, first found an obscure blog that told this story <laughs> that supposedly had happened uh, uh, on Tonga, which is an island group in the Pacific Ocean. And after that, I devoted about a year of my life to this story because it took a lot of time. <laughs> but I'm, I, I managed to, yeah, to really confirm that it did, it did happen. And I traveled to Australia to track down uh, a couple of the boys who are now 70 years old, by the way. Wow. So they're not really boys anymore. Uh, but they were 13 to 15 years old back then. And they survived for one and a half years on an uninhabited island. Wow. And um, they're still the best of friends up until today. You know, four of them are still alive. And uh, especially the captain who rescued them. He's a wonderful man named Peter Warner. And uh, and one of the boys, um, uh, Mano, they're, they're still soulmates today. You know, they But the ones they go. murdered on the island are dead, right? The ones who are alive are the winners <laughs> and they killed a bunch of other boys while they were on the island. That's the story, isn't it? No, I'm sorry. You know, if this, would be a, if this would be a Hollywood film, and it's going to be a Hollywood film, by the way, but if, if it would be, mm. <laughs> say, a fictional, a fictional Hollywood film, people would say, this is so unrealistic. This is so naive. Come on. These kids, you know, they just stay friends. And when they, they, they have fights, they, they, they impose this timeout. And then one of them goes to one side of the island. The other goes to the other side of the <laughs> island. Cool off for a little bit. Come back and say sorry. Highly unrealistic. But it, yeah, it really happened. I'm afraid. So, so the in reality, it was what they they created a what they created a nice little world for themselves. Like it was not violent. It was friendly and and peaceable. Yeah. In Dutch, we like to say that it was a it's a very wet story. How they say that? It's a very, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very what does what does that story. mean? Uh, I don't know. It's sort of like a, a very. Um, 
sentimental story, but this, ah. <laughs> but in this case, uh, as I said, yeah, it it really happened. So um, at first, obviously, they they um, they had to find food as soon as possible. So they uh, ate raw eggs, etc., or and, and birds that they could find. Or uh, by the way, I should start with the fact that they drifted for eight days and and almost dying of of hunger and thirst when they ended up on the island. Wow. But anyway. Then they sort of, yeah, they built their own mini society there. Uh, so they worked in teams, two to be on the lookout for ships, two to tend to the garden and two to cook. Um, they always, you know, started with uh, singing songs in the morning and also uh, uh, before they uh, went to sleep, they built their own hut. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that all kids would be able to survive on an island mm-hmm. like that. And, and and a lot of their, you know, their cultural knowledge as Tongans was obviously very important. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, this is you know, it's an, it's an island nation. People grow up with the sea there. Um, but I am saying that if millions of kids around the globe are still forced to read Lord of the Flies <laughs> in school, right. then maybe they also deserve to know about the one time in all of world history where real kids shipwrecked on a real island because that's a very different story. Yeah. And they might have a much more optimistic view of humanity if they did or if they yeah. did hear that story. Um, yeah. Well, we have to take a really quick break. I've got so many more questions for you, but we'll be right back with more Rutger Bregman. As a factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. 
Okay, uh, we're back with Rucker Bregman. So we have this idea that humanity is cruel and, and mean to each other. We need civilization to protect us. You argue fundamentally that that's wrong or, you know, the story from the, from the Lord of the Flies is wrong. I almost said Lord of the Rings. That story is also wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, uh, let me ask, though, you did talk about Let's let's talk more about, uh, you know, as a historian, the you know, the long sweep of human history. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked about how, you know, rulers arising would, you know, uh, horribly tax their, uh, you know, their subjects, et cetera, um, slavery, these sort of things arising. Mm -hmm. And it does occur to me like those are also a product of human civilization mm -hmm. um, and. I don't know. Isn't there a possibility of committing an error of saying, okay, well, you know, when humans are really left to their own devices, hunter gatherers before, you know, money and before agriculture, the boys on the, on the desert Island, that's real humanity. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when, uh, you know, when we get money and slavery, oh, that's, that's fake humanity. That's something else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when aren't these things all humanity and, and how do we then begin to weigh, uh, you know, the, the light versus the dark? I think that's a really good point. You know, I, uh, I devote one chapter to the history of war in the book. And for a long time, people thought that war has basically been with us since forever. But now archaeologists actually think the opposite, that war mm. is a quite recent invention that indeed starts with the moment people start settling down and, you know, invent agriculture and they start living in these groups and you get these in-group, out-group tendencies. Also, the, uh, the developing hierarchies are important here. Now, obviously, these were all possibilities already latent within human nature. I, I like to see them as, as what evolutionary anthropologists call a mismatch. So uh, an example that everyone knows of a mismatch is um, fast food. Right, we we are just not designed, or we've not evolved to to be able to withstand fast food, McDonald's, sugar, etc. We we've evolved to be attracted to it, right? To find yeah. it delicious, but in fact, too delicious in a way yeah. that is ultimately detrimental detrimental yeah. to us. Yeah, and that was fine if you lived on the savanna or in the jungle, and you would mm -hmm. say encounter a tree that was full of fruits. Then it made sense, also, also evolutionary, to just eat all the fruits. Because then yeah. you would, you know, uh, yeah, you would save something for later, basically, and then store that in your body. But if you're surrounded with delicious food all day, yeah, then we're, we're simply, we haven't evolved for that. And um, I think you can look at many atrocities in human history in the same way. That doesn't mean that it's not human, that they're not products of human nature. But in a way, they're, they're also, um, it's also all about the context in which we've ended up. Now, two things are important here, two sort of dark sides, I think, of human nature. On the one hand, uh, it's uh, our groupish tendencies. So yes, we've evolved to be friendly, but mostly towards those who are close to us, to people that we can see, hear, feel, that are part of our own group. We've really been designed for face-to-face -face contact. Um, we can look one another in the eyes, for example. We have very unique eyes with white sclera, um, so that we can track each other's gazes. Mm -hmm. uh, all the other primates, the chimpanzees and the bonobos and you name it, they've got dark around their irises so that mm. you can't really see what they're looking at. They're mm. a little bit like mafiosi wearing shades uh, <laughs> while we just give away our, 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 our gazes to everyone. And also, and I thought this was really fascinating, um, 
we are the only species, or pretty much the only species in the whole animal kingdom with the ability to blush. Hmm. You know, we involuntarily give away our feelings to yeah. those around us in order to establish trust. But as a, you know, that only works in face-to-face contexts. And as we all know from Twitter, once people become <laughs> <laughs> anonymous and, <laughs> you know, they, they start to behave. Uh, yeah. Twitter is the ultimate sunglasses where your, your natural ability to yeah. read emotion out, off of each other. Yeah. It's a very incredibly inhuman environment. It's basically designed for inhuman behavior. Yeah. Uh, because so many of the things that, yeah, makes us, you know, helps us to cooperate are simply... Uh, not there. So that's that's mm. one really important thing. This sort of these groupish tendencies, and also the role that distance plays is that if the distance increases, uh, people start to behave uh, uh, a bit, quite a bit nastier. Um, and the second thing is the fact that power corrupts. I think that's really important. We now have a lot of evidence from, uh, especially from psychology, um, and historians would agree here, by the way, because there's so many examples in history uh, that. Power is a, it's like this drug. Um, there's, there's even evidence from brain scans now that it, it that it uh, impacts the regions in your brain that are involved with feelings of empathy or with mirroring other people. But that doesn't really work anymore with people who are um, uh, more powerful. There's some somehow disconnects it from the rest of the society. Mm. Their social Wi-Fi isn't isn't really working anymore. Yeah, and that uh, that is, um, I, th- I think, also an explanation for many of the bat behavior that we see throughout history. I also think there might be an argument here about the systems that we build in our Mm -hmm. civilization, you know, Mm -hmm. that we, you know, especially now our entire civilization is these, these massive systems that we barely understand. You know, that's why everybody who works for, you know, a company like Exxon or Google could be Mm -hmm. a good person in their personal life and, you know, could even, you know, respond when they hear about the bad things their company does and say, oh, yeah, no, I agree. Oh, I'm really worried about Mm -hmm. that. Um, But the system that, you know, they have collectively built and participated in is so large and, you know, does bad things that are almost inhuman in a way. I'm thinking again about just because I'm reading David Graeber's book about how, you know, debt interpersonally is just, oh, like you said, uh, with Mm -hmm. the pub owner, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, oh, Mm -hmm. little IOUs, like, yeah, sure, I'll give you some milk and just remember later, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'll need something from you. And it's a very human thing, but that's a far cry away from what a credit card company does, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, which is uh, the same concept, but in this immense systematized way that, that is like, our humanity is lost in that transition to something massive. There are very few genuine evil people in this world. So, mm. for example, the Joker in Batman, he has, <laughs> uh, you know, those people are very, very rare who just enjoy watching the world burn. Yeah. What you see in history is that is actually that most evil is perpetrated in the name of the good. Yeah. Or in the name of indifference. Now, but what you see a lot is that uh, comradeship or loyalty or friendship are abused or, or, or somehow are, are mm-hmm. tools. Um, I've got one chapter in the book about German soldiers during the Second World War who kept fighting, you know, fanatically in 1944 and 1945 when it was clear they were going to lose the war. And the Allied psychologists, they just couldn't understand it. You know, why are they fighting? They're going to lose. What's the point? Um, and they started interviewing prisoners of war and they discovered that they were not, these soldiers 
sort of the average Wehrmacht soldiers were not ideological maniacs, but they were just fighting for their friends. They didn't want to yeah. let their friends down. Um, and that doesn't, I mean, that's not meant as a justification of anything. It's an explanation. Um, but it's, yeah, it's really important to keep in mind because so often we, we misunderstand the bad things that happen in our society by saying, oh, those are bad people, you know, who do bad things because they are bad. Yeah. It's very often the opposite. Well, okay. You've, I, I mean, every word you say can, you know, helps convince me of your thesis uh, of, you know, the truth about humanity versus uh, the story that we're told. Uh, but what are the results of, of the false story that we've all lived with of the mm -hmm. Lord of the flies version? Mm -hmm. um, what are the ways that we have, you know, built our society on that mm -hmm. mistake. And what do you suggest we do differently? Like what mm -hmm. changes about our society once we mm -hmm. have adopted your view? Mm -hmm. You know, there's this thing that reality is the thing that's still there, even when you stop believing it, mm -hmm. um, which I've always liked. But on the other side, there are also ideas or stories that once you believe in them, they be can become true self-fulfilling mm -hmm. prophecies. So for example, if people believe that a bank goes bankrupt, then it will probably go bankrupt. You mm -hmm. know, because people will withdraw their money and then boom, yeah, there it goes. Um, theories of human nature are a bit like that. You know, they can be placebos that cure people uh, because, uh, you know, you believe that most people are decent and, you know, that's what you assume in other people. And you start designing your whole society around it and then building your democracy or schools and workplaces around it. And it turns out, hey, people are decent if, you, if that's what you assume in them. But if you have a society, you know, just theoretically, where everyone has to read Lord of the Flies and <laughs> <laughs> you teach people from a very early age that, you know, most other people are selfish and that you have to be very wary uh, of, of strangers, especially. Yeah. Um, and that everything, you know, the things that are most important in life are money and status and you name it and building a good CV or having a good resume on LinkedIn, blah, blah, blah. If you build that kind of society, then yeah, you're going to get different behavior. So basically the second half of my book is an argument for saying, well, let's turn this around. You know, if we start with a different view of human nature, that's not some, some, innocent self-help idea, you know, about, ooh, the power of kindness. No, it's a genuinely revolutionary idea. And you can do things radically different. You can build very different kind of schools, very different kind of workplaces. You can do democracy in a completely different way. You can even build prisons where the guards socialize with the prisoners and where you get the lowest recidivism rate, you know, the lowest chance that someone will mm. commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. Because... These prisons genuinely make better people. Uh, that's the mm -hmm. criminal justice system of Norway that I'm describing here, by the way. Yeah. So it's not just some theory here, but it has real world profound implications for basically everything we do. Yeah, I often think about uh, something that stuck with me for my whole life is I remember uh, being in a restaurant in my teens Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, when you're, when you're most likely to have thoughts of stealing things and mm -hmm. I was like, oh, you could just leave the restaurant 
<laughs> you know, and not pay. Like yeah. there's no restaurant guards against that versus, you know, when you go to, at least in America, you go to the CVS and they keep the razor blades behind a uh, lot glass because they're mm. worried you're going to steal them. Right. Or you mm. go to a store where everything has an alarm on it. Mm. Um, there's no restaurant that behaves similarly, that mm. that has some sort of system to make sure you don't dine and dash. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because they I think something about eating culture uh, makes us understand that people are extremely unlikely to do that. Uh, yeah. They're like the social pressure is what stops us from doing it or just, yeah. Who, what decent person would do such a yeah. thing. And I think about how much less pleasant it would be to eat at a restaurant mm-hmm. if they did have that protection. If they, if they were to put in some, you know, scenario of you have to pay before you get the food. Well, then, you know, some fast food restaurants do do that, but yeah. you know, if every restaurant operated that way or, or had some, you know, you're locked in until you go to the cashier and pay them in some way, yeah. it would ruin the experience. And there's like a, I, I, I don't know. Our, our, when we think about people so negatively, it does, we end up building systems that are, punitive and unpleasant and make things worse for everybody. Yeah, yeah. This is one of the reasons why I believe that Scandinavian countries or European countries in general uh, are actually richer than, say, uh, the US mm-hmm. or, or Brazil uh, as well, simply because of the social capital. Uh, if you have societies where most people trust each other, you can have so much more efficiency. Because if people don't trust each other, what you need is bureaucracy, lawyers, you know, security, all that kind of thing. And that's just an incredible waste. So a huge part of GDP in the US is security service, lawyers, corporate lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, which is basically the things you need to pay for if you don't trust each other. Now, if you actually do trust each other and are willing to, you know, basically uh, allow some collateral damage and say, okay, you know, we're going to be ripped off a couple of times, but we just accept that because the alternative is is just a price we're not willing to pay, then you're all better off. Um, trust is the most important, most valuable thing that a society can have. And this is also why I think, you know, there are good reasons to be, I mean, there are many reasons, obviously, to be a bit pessimistic about the state of, the, of America today. Uh, but sort of the, the longer Brought to, brought most powerful argument is I think um, uh, these polls where you see that the amount of people in the US that says I believe that most people can be trusted that on average you know most mm-hmm. people are fine has been going down 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 since the fifties. Mm. What is uh, it at? Do you know? It's now I think around thirty percent, and it used wow. to be uh, more higher than fifty percent. If wow. you look at the Scandinavian countries, it's around 70%. So in the Netherlands here, it's also around 70%. Now, that doesn't mean that people are more selfish in the US. Don't get me wrong. It's absolutely not the case. If you, for example, do these experiments with, I mean, people, um, uh, you, you know, you drop wallets and you test if people bring them back. It's, you know, it's not that Americans are are, are more uh, egoistic or, or anything like that. It's just yeah. you have these this what researchers call the values perception gap is that we we say about ourselves that we think cooperation and compassion are very important. We just believe we're the only ones. Yeah. <laughs> and we're th- we even say, those other people, you know, they're actually selfish, but I'm <laughs> compassionate. You know, I, I, I think it's important to help other people. Um, so that, that's, that's, a, that's a real challenge um, to sort of change perceptions there because, you know, it could 
really influence behavior as well. Yeah, it's another example of the yeah the perception creating the reality. Yeah, um, I, I do want to ask you though. Uh, this is maybe just slightly adjacent to the topic, but um, you know when when we're comparing ourselves to uh, Scandinavian countries or you're in the Netherlands, another another uh, country that I think people use as uh, mm-hmm. as a positive example. I visited Norway a few years ago, um, and. Uh, beautiful country. My ancestors are actually from, or I have ancestors from Norway, so I felt very mm-hmm. at home. I was like, oh, it's drizzly. This is great. Like, I like the temperature. This is clearly the climate I was made for. But I also had the sense I was like, this whole country is like visiting like my rich friend's house. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, they have so much oil money, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. There's like, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff there where it's like, oh, we should all live like this, but we all can't afford it. There's like a, there's like a, uh, a privilege almost in terms of the way that the, you know, the, the socioeconomic conditions of the country. And mm-hmm. I understand, yeah, with the wallet tests, uh, for example, I've heard of these experiments where they drop mm-hmm. a wallet and see how many people return them, that it's not like there's something different in the culture of America or, you know, our, our innate goodness as people. But is there, you know, when we're making those comparisons, is there not something about the countries that we should be taking into account yeah. about? yeah. So if I would talk about the cultural differences between sort of the Nordic European countries, and I would include the Netherlands here mm-hmm. uh, with the UK and, and, all, and especially obviously with the US, uh, you know, I wouldn't emphasize the oil money or the, the you know, the social security or universal healthcare, et cetera. These are all important. But the main difference I would emphasize is um, what in, in Sweden, they call it Jantelagen, the law of Jante. Uh, in the Netherlands, we call it hayfield culture. Um, <laughs> it's this social phenomenon where basically success is seen as a crime. <laughs> so um, we don't have that here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the the humble brag is, for example, very important in the Netherlands. If you have, you know, I, I had a bit of success with my books in the Netherlands, and that's it's, it puts you in a very difficult situation because. You know, because it's very, it's very hard what, what to say because people start to distrust you very quickly. And this reminds me, by the way, of um, the political system of nomadic hunter gatherers. You know, mm. there's been a really interesting research here uh, where it turns out that nomadic hunter gatherers from around the globe have this system called the reverse dominance hierarchy, which basically means is that they their political system is a pyramid, but then on top, right? So uh, turn around. So the group controls the leaders and the leaders mm. have to be incredibly humble. Humble is their, you know, mm. their, 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 it's an absolute political prerequisite. So imagine Donald Trump in prehistory. He wouldn't have survived for long. You know, wouldn't mm-hmm. be passed out of the group, died alone. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and you needed friends in order to survive because, you know, if you didn't have friends then you didn't have food in the long run. Um now, this humbleness, it, it went really far. So there's this one description of an anthropologist who studied a tribe in uh, Namibia where uh, and he, he, he heard about this story of uh, how successful hunters are supposed to behave. Well, imagine you, you had a great kill, you know? It was a really successful day and you come back to the camp. What do you do? Well, you say nothing. You, you know, you sit silently at the fire and someone comes up and asks, well, did you catch anything today? And you say, no, oh, no, no, not really. It wasn't very successful today. And then that person knows 
tonight's going to be a feast. Awesome. Right? <laughs> so, and, and that attitude, I see that in Norway, I see it in Sweden, in Denmark, in the Netherlands. There's this social law of that successful people basically have to shut up. And if they don't, <laughs> then we'll make sure they will. <laughs> and I think that's, a, it, it's, um, Sometimes a lot of a lot of times Europeans point at the U.S. and say, "Well, look, you have got the Silicon Valley there, and they've got uh, many more successful companies because they don't have this, you know, repressive cultural phenomenon where they people look down on success." But to be honest, if I uh, if I look at the state of democracy here and compare it to you know the U.S., yeah. I think uh, I'm willing to accept uh, the bargain. <laughs> well. Uh- I'm curious about, I'm surprised this is the first time that we've brought up their names, but, um, you know, a lot of the dialogue that we're having here between these two ideas, you know, mm-hmm. is, uh, uh, emblematic in the works of like, you know, Thomas Hobbes and Rousseau, right. It's like mm-hmm. those, those comparisons, mm-hmm. um, these ideas have deep roots. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious if there are ways in which the negative view of humanity in mm-hmm. your view has been like built into our political structure in even deeper ways. You were talking about prisons, but mm-hmm. um, in terms of just our, yeah, I, I mean, our more fundamental yeah, structures right. or ideas about society. Sure. Well, I can give a lot of examples. I think we we just got to look at our institutions first. So schools, for example, most schools still rely on the idea that you need to put knowledge into the brains of kids and they're organized in a quite hierarchic way with classrooms and teachers uh, and the kids have to do homework and then they get graded for that. You know, this is all sort of the standard things that we associate with school. Can you do that differently? Yeah, you can. You know, there are some radical schools out there that have abolished homework, abolished most of the hierarchy. There are even some like radically democratic schools where, you know, the students... Um, can, you know, decide who they want to hire as teachers, for example. Um, And it turns out that these schools work pretty well, you know, with with good results and they produce healthy individuals. In almost every single way, they're the opposite of what you think uh, when you say the word school, but it still works. Same is true for the workplace. So the standard workplace is this pyramid again, you know, with the manager who has a plan and then he has sub-managers and then at the bottom you have the people who do the actual work. Can you do it differently? Yes. There, there are more and more examples now of companies and organizations that have basically abolished management. Um, I've got one example in my book of by far the most successful healthcare organization in the Netherlands. It's an organization called Neighborhood Care. And they have now 15,000 employees, uh, all in self-directed teams who decide for themselves who they want to hire, what kind of additional training they need. Mm. Uh, their schedule, uh, everything basically, um, and it's it's as I said, it's it's highly successful, and they deliver higher higher quality healthcare at a cheaper cost. Because you know, if you actually start trusting people, then you can get rid of a lot of the bureaucracy and the management that often doesn't really yeah. add anything. So, yeah, you can do you can just look at basically. Uh, uh, pr- uh, we talked about prisons. You can also do democracy in a completely different way if you think that citizens are not just these selfish, apathetic people who just want to watch television, CNN, Fox News, and be angry, um, then you can move to a society where maybe the citizens can become the politicians, you know? Yeah. Um, And you don't have career politicians anymore, but you go back to the original Greek idea of what a democracy is, where, 
in, in ancient Athens, they um, randomly selected citizens from the population to be politicians. So most people would be politician once or twice in their lifetime. Um, or you could do uh, what they call participatory budgeting, which has been a very successful movement since the 1980s, uh, where basically people from the left to the right, rich, poor, young, old, come together to decide, uh, you know, basically what they're going to spend the money on. And the fascinating thing here is that if you give people that freedom, uh, if you give them the opportunity to talk to experts, to have good knowledge and to bridge that political divide, it works. The big yeah. problem is that it's incredibly boring. It's, it's, <laughs> it's incredibly boring. So it's, it sounds like a lot of meetings is what you're describing. Well, that's, I mean, Oscar, Oscar Wilde once said that the whole problem with socialism is that it takes too many evenings but <laughs> no but this i mean this is not socialism obviously it's it's democracy and um uh it works but television doesn't like it news and media don't like it because it's basically people drinking coffee around a table and having reasonable discussions um, yeah it's the opposite of reality television and, yeah. and as you know i mean the the, the whole cha- the, in the in the beginning of reality television that is now, I don't know, what is it, 20 years old? Uh, or actually, the real world of MTV goes goes longer. But the challenge for the producers of reality television has always been to make people right. behave in nasty ways, right? right? And they know that if you don't do anything, if you just leave people alone and, and govern their own affairs, yep. it's going to be so boring. Nothing happens, you know? Yeah, They're the just num- going to have a cup of tea and The number of times I'm watching The Bachelor and I'm like, oh, the producers gave that girl a lot of wine. And then they said, you go over there and you talk to Stacey and you tell her she said, talk some shit about you and you go talk to her right now. They have to instigate that shit. It doesn't happen by itself. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what you're talking about is, uh, yeah, it's just sort of how fundamentally better systems you can build when you have a more positive view of humanity in any way that like uh, with schools, one of the things I learned in my own work is that, you know, people just love to learn. Uh, They just genuinely enjoy it. It's fun. Mm -hmm. They like it. If you make it fun and you make it Mm -hmm. just, you know, you, you make it go down easily enough, they will gravitate Mm -hmm. towards it and come back. That's why people are listening to this podcast right Mm -hmm. now is because they love to learn. And us just talking about these difficult issues is Mm -hmm. something that they fucking enjoy. (laughs) That's that's it. Um, And school that, yeah, the school system I was raised in is based on the opposite premise, which is that children don't want to do it and you have to make them do it and you have to monitor them to see if they do it, uh, et cetera. Same thing you're talking about with the workplace. It's, you know, do you have to, or do you assume your employees are going to slack off and you have to like be standing there with a stick or do you assume that they can make good decisions that they're motivated simply by the love of, of doing a good job? Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that, that they can self-organize in a way. And yes, the same thing with democracy. I mean, I'm, I'm really, I, I you know, we, uh, previous guest we had on the show, woman mm-hmm. named, named Nithya Raman, who ran for city council here in Los Angeles, um, ran a really revolutionary campaign and her campaign was premised on just trying to engage people. And tell people who who don't ever think about local politics, hey, guess what? There's this position called city council person. It's really important. Your vote is very powerful for it. And let's have some meetings. Let's let's talk together about what we need. Like, yeah. you know, let's do yeah. it in, in a real community focused way. 
And no one had literally ever done this before in Los Angeles. And it was massively successful. Like mm. literally every other politician had been, oh, let me just get a couple endorsements. I'll send out a lot of mailers because that's the only way to get my name out there. You know, I'll, I'll send I'll spend a million dollars on mailers versus, hey, let's have neighbors having conversations. And that yeah. turned out to be more successful. Um, so, it, I mean, what you're describing is your view when put into practice wins in all these yeah. arenas because you end up yeah. with more effective systems. Yeah. It's the power of expectations, you know. There's this, there's this old famous study done by a researcher named Bob Rosenthal in the 60s. So um, what he did is uh, he had a school where kids were asked to do a, a simple intelligence test. And then they gave the results to the teachers and said, you know, these are the real promising kids, you know, who are really smart. Uh, according to our findings, you know, maybe you don't, don't see that right now, but they have the most potential to develop. And those others, well, not so much. They just, in, in reality, this was just fake. They just randomly chose uh, these supposedly, you know, promising kids and said that to the kids. In reality, there was nothing. But it turned out a year later that indeed these supposedly promising kids had uh, much better results. Uh, because, you know, the power of expectations. Teachers treated them differently. Yeah. They were like, you know, I, I expect so much more of you. And I'm, and that is just something you see that in education, but obviously, I mean, you see it everywhere. It's, it's one of the ways I think that racism does its, does its terrible work. It's the power of low expectations where you yeah. say, you know, I don't expect much of you. And the terrible tragedy here is that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't expect much of people around you, then you're not going to see much. Yeah, I experienced that. I, I, in my own schooling, was put into a, quote, gifted and talented class. I don't know what criteria that was based on. There were mm -hmm. <laughs> there were mm -hmm. smarter kids than me at the school, mm -hmm. probably because I was also diagnosed with ADD and I was very uh, impulsive, disruptive kid. And they're like, maybe if we put him in a special class, he'll do a little better. <laughs> but <laughs> but it meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to me that I was like, oh, they're like, oh, you're in this special this special class, this special teacher who like took us a little more seriously as adults and as thinkers, you know, and yeah. uh, that was something that, you know, I found I found inspiring. And that's true. Yeah. That's like, why? Why just me? Why did only yeah. I have that uh, commitment and and positive affirmation given to me when yeah. every literally every student would have benefited from that? And there were students at the school who had the opposite experience, who were tracked into the vocational classes, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. which were, which were treated at the time, not that they should have been, but they were treated at the time as being negative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And once you, once you really get this, because obviously this is a simple idea that is, that's still very easy to forget. So once you really get this, it's also, a, you know, in your personal life, quite amazing to experience what you can do with it. Yeah. Um, you know, just, uh, how did it say, how did it say, call it, you know, kill them with kindness, uh, mm -hmm. or the power of, uh, you know, non-conforming behavior where someone approaches you with distrust. I see, I, I have this sometimes with my emails <laughs> is that I get these incredibly angry emails and then I send them, you know, a short, you know, relatively nice email back and people are, are often totally shocked by it. Like, oh, God, I do this all the time. And, yeah. And relatively nice. And God, I'm so ashamed of myself. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I do this all the time. I go into my DMs on the various services and people write, ah, you're so full of shit. And I, can, and I say, oh, thank you for watching the show. Uh, why do you feel that way? And they immediately, they immediately yeah. get so nice. Yeah. Yeah. And that, <laughs> you, that's because at first you were just abstract, you know, you, yeah. you weren't 
you weren't a real person. There was a, a huge amount of distance between you and that person. And then suddenly, you know, you're an actual human being. And they're like, God, but I don't want to be nasty to actual human beings. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a real tragedy as well, right? That because, I mean, we live in a big world with more than 7 billion people. And um, if you look at so many of the terrible things that happen to humans and animals, by the way, because if you think about uh, factory farming, I think, I mean, most of us couldn't eat a single piece of meat if we had to see a video of, of the life of that particular animal before we yeah. could take our first bite, right? We just couldn't do it. But this distance, you know, this whole system that... Um, that just makes it abstract for us. Um, yeah. That enables the atrocity. So, yeah. Well, well, look, I could talk to you for uh, a thousand years. We should come in for a landing <laughs> at some point. Uh, so I, I'd love to end by talking about some of your bigger proposals, your bigger policy mm. proposals. I mean, a few years ago, you wrote a book called Utopia for Realists, your other book that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that you, for instance, uh, talked about help popularize the idea of universal basic income other policy proposals. I'm curious how those fit into this view and, and what other sort of similar, you know, if you could, uh, if you could go advise the, the new Biden administration hmm. um, and, uh, or, or go speak before the UN, what are your, hmm. uh, and get your policy proposals enacted. What are hmm. they? Okay. So the biggest thing or the most important thing for the Biden administration right now is to be bold and aggressive because you've basically got only two years and you've really got to show people <laughs> substantial results, yeah. you know, that make an actual difference in their lives. If you compare that to, say, the Obama administration, back then, Democrats were very enamored by, I mean, the sophisticated science of nudging, for example, making mm-hmm. small changes in, I don't know, the description of a policy or a letter of the fiscal authorities to people, and that that would, you know, change the world. Mm-hmm. If they go that direction again, then, you know, it's uh, they're going to be, I think, destroyed two years from now. And uh, and then they, uh, they probably deserve that as well. Um, no, you really need to go big and bold. And the good news is that there are really exciting new ideas out there. And that's very different from, say, 10, 12 years ago. With, you know, after the financial crash of 2008, everyone knew what they were against, you know, against the austerity, against the establishment, against growth, against, against everything. But mm-hmm. it wasn't really clear what they were for. That's very different. I think, especially in America, it's, it's pretty clear what needs to be done, right? Yeah. Uh, whether you talk about, you know, universal health care or poverty alleviation, a guaranteed basic income, um, ambitious climate policy. I mean, it's all, it's all pretty clear. And I think it's all grounded in, a, in basically a more hopeful view of human nature. Um, actually, already the, the money that people received during the pandemic is grounded in this more hopeful view of human nature, isn't it? Yeah. Because people got $600 and now they're, they're going to get more, right? What is it? Another $1,400? Um, the assumption here is that people are not going to spend it on drugs or alcohol, but they're going to use yeah. it to pay for food or, you know, for education or whatever. So yeah. the fact that, and, and it has already worked. Um, and I, the only thing that I'm saying is that it shouldn't be incidental, but it should be, it should be structural. So an incredibly rich country like the US should basically abolish poverty. And it should have done that decades ago. It's more than yeah. rich enough. Yes, there will be some lazy people who do nothing, but who cares? 
You know, why focus <laughs> on the lazy people? It doesn't matter. There's lazy, there's lazy rich people, too, who also do nothing. Oh, there are way more lazy people among the rich, you know? Because, you know, that, that's their biggest form of income is basically yeah. rent seeking. You know, they've got their properties and they just collect the rents. That's it. That's the, the highest form of laziness. That's, by the way, the reason why I am in favor of a tax of laziness. Wealth taxes are taxes on laziness because mm. they force people to actually work for their money. Yeah. Um, you know, and do maybe an essential job or something like that. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, a universal basic income or a guaranteed basic income is grounded in this more hopeful view of human nature is that people want to contribute. You know, they want to be yeah. part of society. They want to contribute to the common good. And um, again, we don't have to theorize here. Uh, for my book, Utopia for Realists, I looked at basically all the evidence we have. Turns out that actually it's an incredibly American idea. It was Richard Nixon who almost implemented it in the 1970s. Yeah. Um, it didn't happen back then because Democrats love the idea of a basic income, but they wanted a higher basic income. So they voted against Nixon's proposal because they thought, you know, there's going to be another time and then we'll pass it. Didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Very sad story. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, back then there were these huge income, basic income experiments in the U.S., uh, you know, thousands of people received it. So they just wanted to test how people would use the money, whether they would stop working. And it was very successful. Um, and I think it really also, I don't know, I think it, 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 it works with the, I don't know, all these standard American ideas around, you know, the American dream, opportunity, venture capital for the people, etc. It's the ultimate marriage of left-wing and right-wing thinking because you get freedom and security at the same time. You know, you get the freedom to yeah. decide for yourself what you want to do with your life. It gives you some fancy capital. Or in Silicon Valley, they call it fuck you money. You know, the freedom to say <laughs> no. Um, and now only the rich have fuck you money, where they say, yeah. no, I'm not going to do that. And I would love to live in a society where everyone has that freedom. Everyone can say, you know what? I'm not going to take the shitty job because I got, I got a, I got enough money to live for another week or another yeah, month yeah, yeah. to while I yeah. go find another job. They're not exactly. forced into the bad choice. And then people um, ask me, yeah, but Rodger, if, if everyone has a basic income, who's going to do my laundry? Who's going to wash my dishes? And then I'm like, well, you, you're going to start paying people who do that right now, a living wage or more than that. And if, if you don't want to do that, you're going to do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, let me ask you this about UBI. We had the, oh. uh, one of the founders of, of the organization give directly on the show, oh, um, which, uh, you know, talked about this idea of people using cash in the most efficient way. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're also doing, uh, uh, basically a UBI trial. Um, I, I believe by, yeah. you know, giving, giving cash to folks. Um, one of the things we talked about though, is that, you know, that whole effective altruism movement, a lot of it comes from extremely wealthy people who are asking the question, how do I give my money away as efficiently mm -hmm. as possible? Right. It comes mm -hmm. from one of the Facebook co-founders co is one of the, mm -hmm. the big yeah. people in this movement and has donated a huge amount of money to give directly. Um, and a criticism I've heard of UBI on the left is that it's, you know, it's very popular among the Silicon Valley folks because, hey, this is a way that we can keep the economy moving, make sure that the lower classes have enough money to keep mm -hmm. buying our shit without us having to 
you know, pay that much more in taxes, right? We don't need to pay for infrastructure or things like that. We can just, Hey, give out a couple hundred bucks a month. That's cheaper for us. And it means they have to, you know, keep spending money on things that we make. Um, and as someone who's, who's very critical of wealth, I mean, I've obviously saw your clip at Davos where you're telling off the billionaires. Wonderful. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, But you're a UBI proponent. I'm, I'm curious how you tackle that argument. Yeah. I think this is such a destructive tendency among the left is that, they say, oh, but wait a minute, Elon Musk likes the idea as well, then it must be crap, right? And they stop <laughs> thinking about it. I mean, yeah. obviously there are different versions of UBI and there are some versions that are probably bad. So if you would finance the whole thing with just, say, a value added tax, which is a highly regressive tax that especially the poor and the middle class pay, then, you know, maybe it's not going to prove enough. Mm-hmm. Now, I would obviously finance it in a way that it will reduce inequality. Um, and I think it's only, uh, I think it's actually great news that a lot of people in, in Silicon Valley or, or, or tech elites are now talking more and more about that instead of, you know, tax avoidance or tax evasion. I think mm-hmm. it's also good news that there are billionaires or, or millionaires, more and more multimillionaires out there who say, you know what, I'm very rich. And I'm grateful for what's been given to me, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I acknowledge that I, I am rich because of the investments in, in many ways that society and the taxpayers did for me. So please tax me, you know, I want to pay back. Mm-hmm. Um, the sad thing is obviously, though, that they're in the minority. So everyone loves Bill Gates. And indeed, Bill Gates is a blessing to humanity. You know, the day Bill Gates was born was a wonderful day for humanity. I mean, he's probably... He saved millions of lives just in his fight against diseases like malaria. But, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of billionaires who are not like Bill Gates, sadly. Um, So anyway, I think that we shouldn't be too... um, You can believe different things at the same time, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You don't have to choose. So philanthropy, for for example, you know, great. You know, if people want to give money to good causes, wonderful. Yeah. But please don't use philanthropy as a way to distract people from your own corrupt business model and the fact that you're not paying your employees a living wage and that you're yeah. destroying the environment. That's what I wanted to say in Davos, you know, two years ago when I was there. Uh, basically, you guys are all hypocrites because you use philanthropy as a, as a distraction tool. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm against philanthropy. No, it's it's, it's what Bill Gates is doing is, is great, I think. Um, but he's the exception, I'm afraid. Yeah, I mean, I'm of two minds about, I think, as you say, I believe both things simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I, uh, you know, when it comes to Bill Gates, and this is a little bit off the topic, but, mm-hmm. you know, there are uh, billionaires who are like, I'm giving away all my money, but they're giving it away in that way. Oh, I'm giving it to folks direct. I'm giving it to give directly, right? They're not yeah. giving it to the organizations that are working for the systemic change that would take away even more of their money and the mm-hmm. away the money of all their friends, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a little bit of a conflict there. It's not going to, doesn't mean I'm going to say, Hey, Bill Gates, stop saving all those malaria yeah. lives. But yeah. there's like, but I think you're right about getting in the way of the, of, yeah. of actual progress well, uh, look, with that argument. I'll put it differently. I think in a just society, billionaires don't exist. I think yeah. billionaires are what they call a policy failure. Because it's simply, it cannot be true that you are so brilliant that you deserve (laughs) 
<laughs> a billion dollars right. or you don't that's just not the case you're not that special i do believe that some people are more talented than others and some people produce more wealth but actually most of i mean this is the essence of what it means to be human is that we are fundamentally inter interdependent and that yeah. individually we are highly incompetent we can do almost nothing right <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, you know i i'm using technology right now that i that I don't really understand, a camera, a microphone. I'm, yeah. I'm eating food that I can't prepare on my own. I travel around in a car that I I have hardly any clue how it works, you know? We are so incredibly incompetent and we rely on, on the other people all the time. And that is what makes us powerful. That is especially, yeah. this is our big superpower, this inter interdependence, that we rely on the traditions and the knowledge and the inventions of those who came before us. Um, so this... This whole idea, you know, of, of people deserving to be a billionaire, I mean, philosophically and mor morally, it's just, it doesn't make sense to me at all. I, I do think there there's room for inequality. Uh, and I also think that some amount of inequality is probably best for all of us. I don't believe in sort of, you know, communism where you share everything. But I think the burden of proof is on the rich. You know, they should um, come up with really powerful proof that actually this inequality benefits even the very poor. And if you just walk around for, I don't know, for 50 minutes in Los Angeles, yeah. you see you see more homeless people than you, find, than you find if you drive around for, I don't know, 30 days in Norway or, or in Sweden or yeah. whatever. So it's, um, it's, it's really unjustifable, I think. And uh, that's, yeah, I think we should basically abolish billionaires and probably uh, <laughs> half billionaires as well, because it's, it's just... Uh, it's, it cannot be true that they are so important that they deserve all of this. Yeah, I mean, some people so, some people are smarter than other people. Some people are more productive than other people. Nobody, Bill Gates is not millions of times more smart and productive than the yeah. average person walking around Los exactly. Angeles. You know, he's, he, he's good at some things that other people aren't good at, but not to such and such a degree. Yeah, um, exactly. Well, let's see. Let's take uh, let's take us home here. Um, like, what? Uh, is there is there a dimension of your argument that uh, you feel people can carry around in their daily lives? That is there is there a part of it that affects our daily behavior? I mean, we're talking about big structural changes. UBI obviously yeah. is a massive structural change, one which has become oddly plausible to a degree I, I wouldn't have expected uh, that, you know, people are mm -hmm. really seriously considering it in a, a, a pleasant surprise that it is. Um, but just in terms of our of our daily behavior, is there uh, something that your argument mm -hmm. gives us to take away? Yeah. Well, look, I absolutely hate self-help books. Uh, I think they're the, <laughs> they're the, one of the diseases of our times, uh, and it's it's maybe the best summary of uh, of uh, particularly American capitalism is this belief that you can change nothing except yourself, right? And I would mm -hmm. I would rather start changing with our institutions and our structures, and then maybe Amen. at the end of the day, we'll change Amen. ourselves a bit as well. Anyway, um, I must admit that I still couldn't resist. Because, you know, I'd been working on this book for five or six years and I just started to notice that it, it did change me in a way. So uh, I couldn't resist and I wrote like these 10 rules for life, if you, if you believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, if you had titled the book that, it might have been even bigger. I think there was a pretty big book with that name by, uh, I forget the guy's name. I think he, something happened to him. I don't know where he went. 
Okay, okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> what's the first rule for life if you believe that most people are pretty decent? Um, I think it is when in doubt, assume the best. So often we do the opposite, right? When we can communicate with other people, especially when there's some distance in the communication, say we're, we're using WhatsApp and someone sends, sends you emoji of a smiling piece of shit, right? And you're like, <laughs> you know the emoji that I'm like a yes. smiling... Yeah, exactly. Well, how do you interpret that? It's very hard. And then what people do often is they, when there's some doubt, they assume the worst in others, which I think we shouldn't do for three reasons. In the first place, because statistically, most people are pretty decent. So it's just the odds are better if you assume the best. Um, in the second place, even if people don't really mean well, then your positive response can have, uh, you know, the non-complementary effect. So people can actually start behaving to you in a nice way if you do that, because, you know, you just sort of break, break the, the, the cycle. How do you say that? Um, and then in the third place, even if there are some professional con artists out there who just want to rip you off, who want to con you, etc., I think you should just accept it. Just accept that you will be conned a couple of times in your life. You know, there will be moments in your life that you'll be like, oh my God, I was so sh stupid. And you will feel ashamed. But when you feel that shame, be proud. Because mm. actually it's a sign that you're psychologically healthy. And if you've never been conned, then you should see a therapist because probably <laughs> your attitude to life is not trusting enough and there's something wrong with you. Amen to that. That is that that is very beautiful. That is very beautiful. And the the acceptance of I, I, having that positive view of humanity entails a certain acceptance of of loss to some degree of of being yeah, of accepting yeah. the 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 occasional counterexample and furtherance of the of the greater truth. Yeah, it's a, just a price that we should be willing to pay. It's worth it. It really is. Well, thank you, Rucker, so much for coming on the show. This has been a really fantastic conversation. I, I, I can't thank you enough. Thanks, man. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you once again to Rucker Bregman for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I appreciate all you folks for listening. That is it for us this week. On Factually, I want to thank our producers, Kimmy Lucas and Sam Roudman, our engineer, Andrew Carson, Andrew WK for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the beautiful custom gaming PC that I use to record this podcast and that I stream on at twitch.tv slash Adam Conover. You can find me at Adam Conover wherever you get your social media. If you have a question you would like me to answer, if you just want to give some feedback on on the show, please give us a rating wherever you subscribe, but also you can send us an email at factually at adamconover.net. You can find all my other shit on the internet at adamconover.net as well. And that's it for us this week. We'll see you next time on Factually. Thank you so much for listening. That was a HeadGum Podcast.